Good morning. Did I just turn this on or off? I turned it on. Good. Well, uh, I just want to welcome you this morning to Flagstaff Christian Fellowship. As Caleb said, uh, if you are here visiting, it's just an extra special blessing to have you here today. And uh, our church family online, good morning to you as well. We miss you, friends, and uh, we hope to see you soon. My name is uh, Scott Porter. I serve as uh, one of the elders here at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, and myself and, uh, and Andy are just taking, uh, taking a few weeks to give Dave a little bit of a break from Sunday morning teaching, give him an opportunity to focus on some other areas of teaching and prep for that. So it's my pleasure to do that. Thank you, brothers, for trusting me with this today. Uh, just as a, by way of announcement, Steve will be teaching a adult Sunday school, second hour. Uh, he's going to be teaching on John uh, Payton, uh, missionary to the New Hebrides. So if you are here second hour, it would be a great way to spend your time in the fireside room under Steve's teaching. And just by way of informing our prayer, just encourage you to be in prayer for our winter camp upcoming this weekend for our middle school and high school students, a number of... Uh, number of those students will be going to uh, camp, and thank you for the leaders that will be chaperoning and leading and guiding that. So uh, if you wouldn't mind bowing, and we can just commit this to prayer. Father God, we um, thank you for your grace and mercy that even make gathering on a Sunday morning important to us. There are many other things that we could be doing on Sunday. But Lord, you have called us together because you have saved us and this matters. So we thank you for the grace that was poured out to us. And Father, we want to just, um, as Caleb prayed again, we just want to pray for Beth and just pray that you can dry her tears with the loss of her mom, Marge. And I know there uh, is a combination of sadness and sorrow as well as joy, knowing that Marge is forever with you with a new body she can communicate and thank you for the the time that we were able to spend with marge uh, just guide beth guide guide the siblings moving forward and father we do want to pray for this upcoming weekend that you make much of uh, winter camp pray for safety pray for fun pray for fellowship and Father, we pray for a deepening of these kids' understanding and appreciation of Jesus Christ. There will be kids there uh, we know that don't know you. Lord, may you just uh, open blind eyes and hearts through the hearing of your word and uh, just give them a rich weekend. So Father, as we come now to uh, the book of Hebrews, guide my words, Father, pray that this time be helpful for us as a church both individually and collectively. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we'll get there in a minute, trust me. So I'm sure, though, that if I were to uh, pool our collective perspective on the need for evangelism in this fallen world, uh, we would probably all agree that, 
As Christians, we have a responsibility to share the gospel with others. And I, I'm sure that we share a longing to see the lost saved and sinners coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We know of people at work and school with whom we either have shared or, or would like to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But if we paint a picture of Christianity as a come to Jesus and your earthly trials will disappear type message, uh, we are not being truthful. James 1.2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need to be willing to share the truth with others that a life of following Jesus in a fallen world involves trials and it involves struggles. And if you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can attest to that fact that we indeed are going to encounter trials and struggles of various kinds. And the challenge for us comes in the form of the question, of how are we going to react when they come? How are we going to react when those trials come? So today we're going to continue our look uh, at the book of Hebrews. Like I said, we're going to, our text will be Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11. And I picked this passage because there are truths bound up in this chapter that are important for the believer to not only learn but apply in the areas of dealing with trials and struggles struggles in our lives. The side of glory, we can expect trials, we can expect tribulations, and we can expect that those will be brought to us by the hand of a loving God. It can be very difficult to maintain a godly perspective on trials, and Hebrews 12 speaks to this. But before we look at that, let me just do a, a quick run over of what we learned last week uh, about the book of Hebrews as a whole. It'll help us put chapter 12 into a, a better context. So we said that the author of Hebrews uh, remains unknown to us, but we can assume that the author as well as the recipients of this letter uh, had a, a solid understanding uh, of the Levitical system which marked those under the Old Covenant. Uh, that's evident because uh, there's just a volume of Hebrew imagery in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we know from other books in the New Testament, namely the book of Acts, uh, that there was potential for great persecution uh, for anyone who professed faith in Christ in the years and decades after uh, Jesus' resurrection, and it was that very persecution that allowed Christianity to spread across the ancient world. Persecution scattered Christians from Jerusalem, and they carried with them the gospel. Churches were planted as they went. And the book of Hebrews was written with uh, three groups of people in mind. Now, the first group I described as Hebrew Christians, these are uh, those who have come out of Judaism, 
into a, a life of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrected Jesus. Hebrews was written, call it 30 years or so after Jesus' resurrection. So group number one would be Hebrew Christians. Group number two to whom the book was written would be unbelievers who had, who had heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. They had a mental understanding of the gospel, but there was not a, uh, a life commitment to the gospel, whether it was from the persecution or from just, just finding it difficult to, to leave the, the Levitical system, sacrificial system behind. Whatever it was, there just wasn't that life commitment. And then the third group was those unbelievers who had heard the gospel but just flat out refused, refused it. They heard, they knew, uh, they just rejected it. And we need to understand that life as a Christian, and especially a Christian who was coming out of Judaism, the majority of this book was written to the first group of people there, um, was marked by persecution and it was marked by other roadblocks, if you will, in the Christian walk. So Hebrews as a book indicates that one of the results of persecution and trials was a tendency to go back, go back to the Judaistic heritage that defined the Israelites for centuries. So in an effort to demonstrate that a life following Jesus involved uh, putting the old legalistic, uh, self-righteous lifestyle marked by that Levitical sacrificial system behind them, the author labors to show them how Jesus Christ, it's the very one to whom the Levitical system was designed by God to point. So by God ordering all those rituals and all those requirements, and even, even in how he ordered the, the floor plan of the tabernacle and the temple, those were all designed by God to point to Jesus Christ. It was always God's intention to use that the system of repeated over and over again animal sacrifices to act like a sign, if you will, on the highway pointing to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and moving forward in a life uh, of following Jesus Christ would mean that they would need to put behind them the old life marked by animal sacrifices, rituals, and other forms of uh, self-righteousness, keeping the law, move forward in a mark, a life marked by faith in Christ. So the author needed to display how Jesus Christ and the new covenant is superior to and the fulfillment of the old covenant Levitical system by drawing attention to the, to the central figure in the Levitical priesthood, namely the high priest. We talked about that, the high priest. There, there were many priests in any given year, but there was only one high priest that would serve as a high priest for that year. That high priest had the unique responsibility of standing, as we said, as a mediator between sinful man and a holy God. And once a year, that high priest on the Day of Atonement uh, was, had the unique 
responsibility after this uh, exhaustive purification uh, ritual and actually after he sacrificed a bull on his own account for he indeed was a sinner he had the uh, responsibility to enter what we call the Holy of Holies the dedicated room in the tabernacle or the temple that was described as the earthly dwelling place of God he could enter that but only once a year but he was a sinner he was a sinful man he was a sinner himself and access to that holy of holies was limited it was limited only to him and even then it was only once a year and that reinforced the fact that access to god under the old covenant was actually uh, limited it was conditional and it was restricted so what sinful man needed to gain that ultimate access to God was a perfect mediator who could perfectly relate to sinful man and perfectly relate to a, a holy God, a perfect mediator. So when Hebrews describes Jesus Christ as our perfect high priest, that's saying that he was perfect because he was truly man as well as truly God, God in human flesh. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he, is, he was our perfect mediator because he was God in human flesh. If you remember our text last week was Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which reads, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, a son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the result in 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So when that heavy curtain that shielded that access to the Holy of Holies, um, therefore limiting man's access to God, so to speak, when that was torn in two, literally, at Jesus' death on the cross, that signifies that anyone who comes to God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross now has unlimited access, unlimited access to God through Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest. Now the result of this access is that, as we saw in verse 16, confidence. We have confidence because when we call on Jesus Christ as our perfect mediator, we're calling on the God-man who has faced the same struggles we are on a human scale, uh, but he proved himself victorious in every single one of them. So as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, the author is uh, discussing one of the obstacles and challenges to the Christian faith, which is trials in the life of a believer, trials and, and suffering. 
The author is uh, striving to show the need for endurance, the need for perseverance, and the need to have a godly perspective when, when we experience trials of various kinds. So I would like to put a key theme in front of you to keep in your minds throughout our time this morning, and that's this. As believers, we must maintain an eternal perspective when God brings various trials to our lives. Again, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must maintain an eternal perspective when God brings various trials to our lives. So I'd invite you to read with me uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11. The author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for in the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that begs the question, so how? So how do we as believers maintain a godly perspective regarding trials and our perceived hardships in our lives? How do we do it? Well, Today's, we're gonna, I'm going to come at you with three points. First, being our inspiration to endure trials. That would be uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 4. Second point will be how easy we forget. That will be verse 5 through 8. And then we'll, uh, our third point will be earthly examples. 
which will be verses 9 through 11. So starting off, uh, point number one, our inspiration to endure trials. Okay, remember, as we read Hebrews, we need to read through the lenses of the Old Testament, right? The Holy Spirit wants to see our Old Testaments as that which should point our minds to Jesus Christ, even though he hadn't come yet. And one of the main points that the author is trying to make throughout Hebrews is this, that an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint are spared from enduring the just penalty for their sins in the same way, namely through faith in Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, saved through faith in Christ. So as we enter chapter 12, chapter 11 needs to be kind of ringing in our ears. I know we didn't read it, but um, in chapter 11, the author describes the Old Testament saints and prophets, Abel, Noah, Abraham, so on. They were actually saved by having faith in a promise of a Messiah that had not yet come. They had faith in all they had is a promise. But they were saved by that faith. And these Old Testament figures, they lived, they lived with, with what could be described as, as kind of a limited understanding of God's revealed plan of redemption. But we need to understand what the Bible, how the Bible describes uh, faith. Flip to the left one, one page, maybe it's on the same page. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the promise that they had. Now these, these pillars of, of the history of the Jewish people, they lived by faith. And they actually believed to the point they believed to the point that they were willing to suffer. They were willing to suffer for a savior that at that point in God's revelation was nothing more than a distant promise. So when we read in uh, verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12, the author is calling us to, to draw our inspiration from these believers in the Old Testament. This cloud of witnesses. These Old Testament saints, they endured, they endured what God had called them to endure in light of this, the future blessing. The future blessing that was promised to them. And it was theirs through faith. So as we move forward in our Christian walks, and subsequently we're going to face trials and suffering, might even face persecution, we are to gain our inspiration to endure and persevere by looking to the examples of those who have come before us by faith. And then in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 12, we're told to not only look to these Old Testament saints who live their lives of endurance, but we're told to look to Jesus Christ as our perfect high priest when we're called to endure a trial. 
Now, if we have faith that makes us a Christian, in God's perfect way, Jesus is described as he from whom my faith comes and also the object of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. Think about it. The entire apex of redemptive history comes to a climax in Jesus Christ. And in God's perfect plan, our faith in Christ, it comes from Christ, it focuses on Christ, who obediently executed the perfect plan of redemption that can only be found in Christ. You can see why that focus is Jesus Christ. It comes to a pinnacle. In this passage of scripture that we just read, it draws our attention to the fact that from an earthly standpoint, this involved our Savior enduring unwanted shame, enduring unfounded hostility, and in a perfect act of submission to God the Father at the cross, he gave his life up for us. Now, where, did that, where does that motivation come from? Well, it came from a perfect heart of obedience, knowing that by Christ's willingness to endure the suffering and separation from God that our sin deserves, when he was crucified as a perfect sacrificial substitute, he knew that there would be a greater reward at the end of that suffering. Namely, that he would receive the glory and the honor and the praise that was due him, and he would gather a people unto himself. That was his prize. So then you're asking, well, what's up with uh, Jesus sitting down? What's up with sitting down? Well, in John 19, we'll get there in about a year. <laughs> in John 19, we see Jesus hanging on the cross. And in an act of love for his people, as he takes the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion, he takes that sin debt for all believers, past, present, and future, on himself, as he experiences for the first and only time God the Father turning his face from God the Son because at that moment Jesus was taking on the sins of the world. We read in John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's pictured as sitting down because the work is done. Because that's what you do when the job is done, you sit down, right? That's why there weren't any chairs in the Holy of Holies. Because the job, the work was never done. Because it needed to be done again and again and sacrifices again and again. Because Jesus hadn't come yet. Under the old Levitical system, the work was never done. Because the perfect high priest hadn't yet come. <laughs> 
So here's the point for us. For inspiration, our inspiration, to endure trials in our lives, we should look to the one who endured perfectly. And by way of example, we should look to Jesus who endured the cross because he knew there was an eternal reward awaiting him once he got through the gauntlet of suffering. Now, obviously, we can't endure perfectly, right? But nonetheless, it does help us to have an example to look up to when we are called to endure. So, the author of Hebrews is writing chapter 12 to those uh, Jewish, those Hebrew believers coming out of Judaism and into a life of following Christ. And he knows, the author knows, there's obstacles, and one of those obstacles are going to be inevitable trials. And if you've ever participated in uh, long-distance endurance events, you know there's obstacles, there's pitfalls, there's times when you just, you got to wonder, is this really worth it, right? And what makes it worth it is keeping your eyes on the finish line, your eyes on the prize. And sometimes the prize is just finishing. You might not win that race, but you're going to finish. And in this case, the very one who we can look, look to for that inspiration, and as an example for us during times of suffering, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the beauty of God, Christ is not only the motivation, but he's also the prize. We're promised that prize, and that prize is eternal rest in Christ. So one of the ways that we can maintain that godly perspective when God brings various trials is to fix our eyes on the the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our next point, which would be point two, how easy we forget, which would be verses five through eight of Hebrews 12. Dude, it's easy to keep an eternal perspective when things are going well, right? Or easier, relatively easier. God is good. There's money in the bank. Kids are healthy. Ministry is going good. Relational difficulties with in-laws smoothed over. So on, right? And something happens. Something happens that shatters your God is good, happy place. And we may not say it out loud, or we may not articulate it for fear of uh, being seen as weak, but we start thinking thoughts of, uh, why me, right? Or in our pride and arrogance, we may think, well, I don't deserve this. Or we may think that somehow God has forgotten us. Or we may secretly or even openly get angry with God, right? for this perceived injustice. Trials and suffering in our lives has an unsavory effect of causing us to forget, causing us to forget God's goodness. 
I would ask that you turn to Romans 8. We're going to be in there for the next few minutes. Romans chapter 8. Uh, I would encourage you to read this chapter slowly this week. As a matter of fact, I actually challenge you to memorize it. I know you can do it. Romans chapter 8 has very helpful keys for us to maintaining an eternal perspective in the face of trials and suffering. Romans 8 starts by Paul saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this is important because if you have trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, Paul's telling us that that sin debt that we've accumulated as a result of our rebellion, everyone in here has a sin debt. If you've trusted in Christ, it is gone. It's deleted, forgiven. As far as the east is from the west. But man, that's easy to forget when the fires of suffering and trials are running hotter than you'd like or hotter than you think you can handle. We tend to fall into this, this forgetful mindset, right? We interpret trials and suffering in our lives as synonymous with God taking, taking that forgiveness back from us. And since nothing exists in a vacuum, we assume that if my eternal forgiveness has been removed, it gets filled with what we think is condemnation. Right? Friends, that is a lie. That is not true. That is gospel-denying lie. So Paul goes on to compare those who are believers with those who are of the flesh, believers to unbelievers. And he tells us that those who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, whereas those who are of the flesh do not. And we're given this promise as, that, as a result of that in Romans 8.11, saying, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul then goes on to teach us that those who are being led by the spirit, uh, Christians, are now considered to be sons of God. We are no longer enemies as a result of our sinful rebellion to God. Now, God considers the Christian to be a child of God or an heir. Romans 8.14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to confuse our being adopted as children of God, which is a truth, or heirs of God, with a promise of a life void of trials and suffering. There is no such promise in Scripture that God's children will be spared from earthly trials and earthly suffering. Look down to uh, verse 16 of Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And you're like, yes, I can deal with that. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We're taught by Paul that is that it's bound up in the character of who God is, that he is good, and that he is sovereign, and in his sovereignty and providence, he is orchestrating all the events in the lives of his adopted children, including trials and suffering, for our ultimate good. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, All things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The love that was displayed most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ for God's elect needs to be interpreted by us, his children, as a representation of his love for us. And it should be a display of his eternal love for us. Look down uh, to verse 31 of Romans 8. Well, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Paul wants us to live in this truth, live in the truth of God's love poured out in Christ for the believer. Look at verse 38 and 39. He says, For I am sure... I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you know why we need to be reminded of these truths? Because when trials come and suffering happens, We forget. We forget God's goodness. We forget that God's holding our very lives and all the events surrounding them in the palm of his hand. And Jesus, who went to the cross to pay my sin debt, and yours if you are here as a Christian, He works all those events, all the events in our lives for our ultimate good, even when they don't appear good. And we forget that. Now flip back to Hebrews 12, if you could, please. In Hebrews 12, in verse 5 and 6, we see the author quote Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. 11 and 12. The author to Hebrews is exhorting us to not equate God calling us to endure trials with God not loving us. Don't confuse trials and suffering as an example or a demonstration of God's lack of love. That love was displayed perfectly in Christ. Read again Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. 
and you and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons quoting from proverbs my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives you see the holy spirit here is trying to get us to see and remember that trials in our lives should be received as discipline from a loving father. John Calvin reflects on the heart of someone who is resisting the discipline of God in their lives, and he says this. Now, Solomon's argument is this. If the scourges of God testify his love toward us, it is a shame that they should be regarded with dislike or hatred for they who bear not to be chastised by God for their own salvation, yea, who reject a proof of his paternal kindness, must be extremely ungrateful. And I know this can be difficult, but we need to see trials and suffering as God's way of authenticating his love for us. And therefore, authenticating our status as his adopted children. If we see God as a loving father and us as his adopted children, the, the, the logical extension of that truth is that God will bring discipline into our lives for our ultimate good as a means of conforming us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So like any good teacher, the author of Hebrews approaches this from the other direction too, from the negative uh, in verse 8, by telling us that if God were to not bring um, times of discipline, if God were to not bring times of discipline or trial to our lives, it would display that we're not his children. So simply, when, when viewed rightly, we need to see that discipline from the Lord, that's a, that's a stamp of approval if you will, on us being children, being considered children of God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to close out this point, another way we can maintain a godly perspective when God brings trials to our lives is to not forget, not forget that we're his adopted children. And as an earthly father, disciplines his children seeing discipline from our heavenly father proves that we are indeed his children which brings us to our third point which is found in verse 9 through 11 of Hebrews 12 earthly examples now I realize that one of the symptoms of living in a fallen world marked and tainted and contaminated by sin is that earthly fathers don't always lead their family in a way that honors the Lord. I know that. We see families where the father is absent or where, worse, a father violates his God-given authority and abuses his children physically, emotionally, and we know that a child's response to discipline 
uh, their earthly father's discipline is not always as it should be. But nonetheless, in verse 9 through 11, we see an earthly example to illustrate this point. It can be helpful in understanding what our response should be when called on by God to endure trials and discipline. And that's the example of an earthly father. It's important to realize that authority is not a result of the curse. Say that again. Authority is not a, not a result of the curse. We read about God giving authority to a, a pre-fall Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.26, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, that's loaded, I know, but I'm going right over that, after our likeness, and then and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, again, it is true, quite true, that sinful man can abuse authority. However, in the wisdom of God, he ordained a system of submission to authority as the way to, to order the created world. And a proper use of this authority, be it in the church or in the home or wherever, it's to be exercised while recognizing that our ultimate authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. So those who are placed in positions of God-given authority are to lead in such a way that those who are subject to authority, as well as those who are in authority, are ultimately submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this plays out in an earthly sense, as we see in, in Hebrews 12, when children submit to the God-given authority of a father. And children have the responsibility to be subject to their father's discipline knowing that the correction given in love by a father is ultimately given for that child's long-term success. Now, obviously, when a child is receiving correction from their father, they don't stand with perfect posture and say, thank you for exercising your God-given <laughs> authority over me, and I accept this as I ought no, it hurts, right? There's, there's pain there. Not pleasure. There's pain for both the child and the, the father. But if at that, at, at, at that mo but if at that moment of corrective discipline, that child were to have a, a full understanding of the intentions behind those corrections, they would know that later it would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here in Hebrews 12, the author is simply saying that there are principles in place when an earthly father exercises his discipline, his God-given discipline for the good of that child. And if this is true for us as fallen sinners, then how much more does this principle apply to us when we, as God's adopted children, through faith in Jesus Christ, are disciplined by our Heavenly Father? 
who is the eternal source of every good gift and every perfect gift that is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our, our flesh does not embrace correction. But if we are to maintain an eternal perspective when God brings various trials into our lives, it's essential that we focus on not the process, but the purpose. God does not want us to focus on the process of the pain. Rather, we need to trust that he is a loving God who has a purpose for the pain. So by way of application, let me just put some thoughts before us. Because as believers, we need to be prepared for how we're going to deal with trials in our lives or else they're going to just send us into a tailspin. So, seeing as how we live out our lives in a community, think FCF, if you are not presently enduring a trial or suffering, you can be certain that you will. And perhaps more importantly, as Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 2, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, we need to be prepared to walk with others. And praise the Lord, there are people here that do that well. We need to walk with others when they are going through hardships. And I would encourage each one of us to recognize and embrace our responsibility to come alongside one another as we each process trials and sufferings in our lives. We can't forget God's sovereignty now, we may not understand why God's doing what he chooses to do, but we do need to remember that he is actively working in the lives of his adopted children with the aim of ultimately conforming us more to the image of Christ through suffering. And without being grounded in this, we're, we're subject to being tossed to and fro. We're subject to drift, drift away from trust in our Heavenly Father now, we're not going to be able to ultimately able to uh, interpret the motives behind God's discipline for us, or we may not understand the why behind God's actions. But let's just look at um, two possible lessons behind God's delivering trials and suffering to us. One of those reasons would be correction, possible correction need to remember that as believers in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are already punished. Okay? Our sins already punished if you're in Christ. The debt that we accumulated as a result of our sins has been forgiven in Christ. The Bible teaches us that a sinless Savior died on the cross, rose again from the grave, so that anyone who recognizes the gravity of their sin and repents and trusts that Christ took my deserved penalty and therefore I'm no longer under condemnation, that sin debt has been paid. No double jeopardy. Nevertheless, God is not wrong for allowing consequences to come as a result of our sin for the purpose of bringing correction in our lives. Consider King David, right? 
God chose King David to be the second king of Israel and for the most part did his job well. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart, but there was this horrific accumulation of sinful choices that he made. We, re- we read of that account in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Spring afternoon, David was on his roof, looked down, his gaze fell on Bathsheba. David had relations with this married woman who then became pregnant. And then David orchestrated all this, this, this elaborate plan to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered so that he could have Bathsheba as his wife. Not a good choice, not a good display. You can hardly imagine a poor series of decisions, especially for someone who was called to lead God's people. Now, God allowed consequences to happen to David as a result of those bad decisions that served as correction. God spoke through Nathan in 2 Samuel 12.10, saying, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The consequences of David's sin... That little baby died. And we see later in David's horrible life, Absalom, I mean, that was just this horrific animosity from Absalom toward David. David's life was marked by tragic events that God used as a tool of correction. Now, did David lose his salvation? No, he didn't. However, God did require him to live out the consequences of those sins consequences of his decisions. So one of the possible reasons that God may allow trials in our lives is to correct us. It would be appropriate to ask ourselves when we are in a trial if there's any area of sin in our lives that may require such correction. Another possible motive behind God's uh, delivering trials to, to the life of a believer would be to instruct Sometimes God may just want to teach us more about himself. And he may use suffering as a tool to accomplish that. In the book of Job, we have an example of another man who received instruction from the Lord through through the means of being called to endure suffering. Job, he was described as blameless, upright, one who feared God, turned away from evil. And in a series of heart-wrenching losses for Job, all of his, ten of his kids were killed. He was apparently a wealthy man with a lot of animals. They were all killed. God allowed Job's health to deteriorate to the point where we see him on the ground scraping pus nodules off his skin with a piece of broken pottery. It's not Not pleasant, but that's what it is. Dogs coming to lick the wounds. But in the wonderful accomplishment of God working through these trials, we find in Job 42, 1 through 6. The result, Job says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard 
of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's a sense that Job was called to go through all that he went through to get to the point where he simply saw God for who he was. So, as God requires us to go through whatever trials he brings to us, we need to be open to this idea that maybe he's just doing what he's doing to show us more of who he is. So let me just conclude. I've got four questions that I just ask that you ask yourself in the quiet of your heart. Do I recognize that God is truly working all things for my ultimate good? Another question. Am I open to submit to the truth that God may be disciplining me as a loving father would his children? Or do I delight in the fact that God disciplining me is actually an authentication of me being one of his children? Last question, am I willing to submit to God's loving sovereignty even if I don't know what he's doing through my trials? Let's pray. Father, please forgive us because we do not understand and see our trials as we should. Father, help us. Help us to see our trials and sufferings through the lenses of you working in our lives. Give us that strength. Father, we pray for perseverance and endurance. We pray for that eternal perspective. And Father, when we are tempted to doubt or, or forget your love for us, may we look to you, our perfect high priest, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you endured the cross. You despise the shame, and we praise you for the fact that you are seated because the work is done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.